This morning we read from Mark chapter 11, Mark 11. When they came nigh to Jerusalem, unto Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never a man sat, loose him, and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way, and found the colt tied by, the door without, in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, Why do ye loosing the colt? And they said unto them, even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strewed them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David. He cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow... When they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots and Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, 
and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. We read that far in God's holy word. Consider this morning the instruction of Lord's Day 46. Lord's Day 46. Why hath Christ commanded us to address God thus, our Father? That immediately in the very beginning of our prayer, he might excite in us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God, which are the foundation of our prayer. Namely, that God has become our Father in Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in true faith than our parents will refuse us earthly things. Why is it here added, which art in heaven? Lest we should form any earthly conceptions of God's heavenly majesty and that we may expect from his almighty power all things necessary for soul and body. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been emphasizing the reality and truth that prayer is talking to God. It is speaking to God, a speech with God, and therefore a form of fellowship with God. Prayer, therefore, has an important place and function in the life of the child of God. Prayer, of course, is a response to God. We emphasize that that our fellowship with God is always the fruit and response to his fellowship with us. God speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through the very events of our life. And not only that, but God speaks to us and we are able to receive what he says because others do not because he has come to us. He has made his home in our heart. He has imparted his spirit. But that is not the whole of covenant fellowship. That's God's part. And the fruit of God's part is that we then have fellowship with him. Even as he talks to us, we talk to him. 
Now, that is not always received, understood. In fact, it can be denied. It has been denied in the form of the notion that fellowship with God is only one way, one direction. Fellowship with God is really only fellowship of God with us. And then there is even the notion that God doesn't respond to our prayers. That if we say God responds to our prayers, then we're making our prayers some sort of means by which we approach God in the same way that we receive the right to enter into God's presence through justification. We'll charge that you're making prayer a condition to whatever God's response might be. But that completely ignores the fact that prayer itself is a response to God and ignores the reality that life in the covenant is not linear. Just like in all relationships, there's an ongoing circular response. God loves us. We love Him. He responds to that love with more love, etc. Prayer is the same way. Prayer, I said, has a significant place and function with regard to our life with God. If you go to the Canons, Head 5, Article 2, you will read that a prayer is, uh, has to do with mortifying the flesh. That is, the life of sanctification for mortifying the flesh more and more, notice, by the spirit, of prayer. It mentions a spirit, a certain spirit of prayer. I'm going to talk about that this morning. Uh, you could go to the Canons Head 5, Article 4, which talks about being constant in prayer, um, praying continually, and then says, so as not to be led into temptation and being seduced by and complying with the lusts of the flesh. Notice the connection there to a life of sanctification. We had mentioned that last week already, that the very life of the child of God according to the law of God is very much connected to the life of prayer. And we even saw that in the passage that we read where Jesus is giving instruction with regard to prayer and talks about it in relationship to forgiving others. We see also in question and answer 116 that it was a means of asking God for things. I'm going to look then a little bit more about that spirit of prayer from the perspective of Lord's Day 46, which is our address to God, a calling upon God, that the things we have to say are to God and then our Father in heaven. So consider with me calling on our Father in heaven the privilege, the purpose, and then the worship. It is important for us to remember and to have come to our mind when we consider prayer, that prayer is commanded, and what we pray and how we pray is commanded. 
that is brought out in question and answer 120. Why has Christ commanded us to address God our Father? We don't call upon God as our Father because we dreamed it up or think it's best, but we do so because Christ commanded us to preach that way. And no doubt the idea is not that we cannot address God any other way or in any other terms in an absolute sense but he's saying this is the general typical way that you call on God when you pray you need to know and believe in your heart that the one you're praying to is your father above all don't ever forget it that follows from the notion that prayer, as we're going to see, is a form of worship. We don't get to just pray any way that we want or ask for anything that we want. Again, remember earlier how we learned in question and answer 118, what hath God commanded us to ask of him? commanded us. The idea of that, again, is we don't get to ask for whatever we want. And in fact, furthermore, the idea is that it's only those things he has commanded us to ask that when we ask, we may be confident he will answer and grant. This is very important for us to understand. Especially when you read passages like what we read. That if you believe and therefore pray that some mountain be cast in the sea, God's going to do it. Now I truly believe that that is going to happen. Jesus said it. Usually he says things for a reason, and I have no doubt that there will be a time, perhaps even just before our Lord returns, that there will be children of God that will be praying that the mountains be cast into the sea. They see what's going on. They know the Lord must return, and in response to their prayer, indeed, he casts them into the sea. But then people say, well, then I can ask for whatever I want. And then have all kinds of doubts when it doesn't happen. Or imagine that their faith isn't strong enough. Well, number one, faith only asks for what God says you may ask for. And we're not going to get into that too much anymore, except to make the point, prayer is commanded. The elements of prayer, who we address, what we ask for, is all dictated by God. And if you ask why, then we need to go back to something we learned from the commandments, which is that all of our worship of God is regulated. There's the regulative principle. When God says, not only worship me alone and no other God, 
But worship no idols. Don't make idols and bow down and serve them. We learned the principle of that is that God determines our worship. We neither may nor can represent by God by any other means. And we may worship God in no other way than the way He has commanded. So if you ask why is prayer commanded and all these things, remember, in the first place, it's a form of worship. Now, the title of the first point is the privilege, not the commandment. Could have titled it the commandment. What is the commandment? The commandment is pray to God our Father. Okay? But it's the privilege. Why is that? Because it is also a privilege. And what I want to emphasize this morning to us is that this Lord's Day and what it teaches about addressing God brings together two things that we often find incompatible or we misunderstand or we forget, which is reverence or honor or worship and Friendship and fellowship, especially being children. That's what's going on here, and that's what we have to understand. Words are being used here, and they're being used deliberately. Why has Christ commanded to address God our Father? It's looking very carefully at that word, our Father. When certain words are used in Scripture, they're emphasizing something. And what it's emphasizing, obviously, is when you call upon Father, that means you're a child. It has something to do with remembering that you come before God as a child. A child. Not merely a slave or a servant. Now, to speak of commandment emphasizes that. That indeed we are servants. We are slaves of God. He owns us. He bought us. He didn't just make us, He bought us. He bought us with the precious blood of Christ. All right? But we're children, and we're supposed to think back about such questions and answers in the Lord's Day, which talked about, well, if Jesus, why is Jesus called the only begotten Son of God since we're also children? And a great answer was given there. We're the children of God. We're children by adoption. We're not children by being eternally begotten like only the Son of God, the eternal Son of God can. Um, then notice again the emphasis that God has become our Father in Christ. Then again, that God will much less deny us what we ask of Him in true faith than our parents will refuse us earthly things. Notice all the emphasis there. So it's bringing together really two concepts, two things that we need to be reminded of, which is, first of all, God is God. And we have to do justice to the fact that we pray to God. We have to remember that prayer is a form of worship. 
And so we owe God reverence. We have to come before Him with respect. We have to come before Him with a sense of His awe, with awe and a sense of His majesty, His glory. We have to remember that we're just creatures. He is the Almighty. He is the invisible God, the unknown God, as it were. And that never goes away. There is something there that we need to be remembered. We need to remember. We may never forget. Because it's being forgotten. There are other relationships that we are in. As children, we are in a relationship with teachers who teach us. And we're children who have parents, a father and a mother. And we're members of a church where there's elders and they rule over us. We're in a relationship there. And how easy is it for us to forget that exactly because the relationship takes a friendly form and is a relationship of love that we forget that often we are in a real position of subservience where there needs to be honor and respect. Is that not the issue, the problem often, even in, even in marriage, how much more equal can you get than a husband and wife in marriage? They're two, they're one, they're both co-heirs of the kingdom, both beloved of God and yet one is head and the other is not. There's mutual love and respect, or there should be. There's a friendship there and a fellowship there that's just quite amazing. Husband and wife can share thoughts and secrets they wouldn't tell anyone else. An intimacy there that just isn't found anywhere else. And yet there has to be a certain reverence and respect of a wife for her husband. There must be. It may be missing. Same thing as parents in a home. We, we, we considered that too when we got to the law of God, didn't we? There should be an amazing, amazing relationship in the home. And if you doubt that, simply again, look at the fact that God is our Father, which should immediately make us think of our earthly relationships. As the Catechism points out, that even if parents will refuse earthly things, they should be close. They should be able to speak one to another. They, they should be able to share fun and games and labors and secrets and all kinds of things that go on in a family. But there must be reverence and respect that does justice to the honor and authority God has given to parents over their children. Same thing in the church. Hopefully you know well and are friends with the office bearers of the congregation who labor in love for you. And by God's grace, they do love you, and you love them, and there's a, a certain amount of friendship and fellowship that goes on, the sharing of life and laughter and so many things, and yet there must be respect and honor and reverence. There must be. It may not be missing. And if you ask why, the answer is because that's how it works with God. Approach God without reverence, and your prayer goes nowhere. Just like if you approach your parents without reverence. 
And all you can say is, gimme, gimme. God must be reverenced and honored. And when we're called to call upon God that way, we're, we're supposed to remember that. God is not my buddy. He is not my neighbor. He is not another human being. He is certainly not an idol or a vending machine. He is our God. He is God over all. And again, I want to remind you how parallel the law of God and prayer is. We should immediately think of all the things we learned in the law of God about who and what he is and knowing him rightly. At the same time, at the same exact time, we're to remember he is yet though our father. And there's certain things that go along with, a, with having a father and being a child of a father. How much different is that than just being a slave or being a servant? Servants and slaves don't get to address their master the way a child would. If they would, they would be whipped. If they would, they'd be sold or even killed. A child has certain privileges. It can ask for things. What the child can ask for is much broader than what a servant could ask for. And all these things should be in our mind. And the point that's trying to be made here is all of that kind of comes together if we realize that it's a privilege that would help us as children. We would be able to behave more friendly with our parents and our parents toward us in the family relationship and with honor and respect at the same time if we remembered what a privilege it is to be a child in this home. God, God could have put me into many, many other homes, but God put me into this one and gave me these parents. And God himself personally selected my parents to be my parents. God did that. And when we begin to think we have a right, just a natural right, then we get into trouble, don't we? Same thing in the church. The problem is when there's a lacking of respect and honor, not only of members for each other, which is so easy to do, but also honor and respect with regard to office bearers, which also is easy to do. The root problem often is we think we are here because we put ourselves here. I can come and go as I please. I can be member wherever I want. And then we begin to think, we begin to forget that, no, God, God, God has everything to do with church membership. God determines many things by his providence, even like putting me in a certain home. Oh, it doesn't mean I can't leave this church for another one, but we, we again, we think that's all, that's all about me and what I want and what I think. And, and so, yeah, we don't, we lose the whole business of reverence because it's a matter of right rather than privilege. Notice the emphasis here upon the privilege it is to call upon the one true God who is almighty and Lord over all. Not just as God, an almighty God, but Father.
Now, how is that done? Well, notice how God is described. On the one hand, He's our Father in heaven. Why is that added? That's, that's the question that's asked. Why is that added? So we don't have any form or any earthly conceptions of God. In other words, we remember God is God. He's not some idol. He's not somebody you can just call upon whenever you want. Maybe perhaps only when you're in trouble. Some conception you formed in your mind. No, he's, he's, he's in heaven. Or God in heaven. There's another reason that's brought up which extends the point. As soon as you think of God in heaven, you should, if you're a child of God, immediately think of who's sitting at his right hand, figuratively speaking, our Lord Jesus Christ. Did we not learn, did we not say in the Apostles' Creed, he ascended up into heaven and sitteth at God's right hand. And as soon as you think of that, you're led right to why it is that I can call God my Father. It's not because I'm a human being and God created us. No, that right we learned was long ago forfeited, lost, gone forever when Adam did what he did and we are guilty of that sin. Oh no. No, God had to make us, his children, make himself our father. Now, we're not supposed to take that in an absolute sense. Like God really never was our father in Christ in any sense whatsoever. But the language there is shocking. That God is become our father. In other words, remember how you lost all the rights and privileges of being a child of God in Adam. And remember, there's only one reason, explanation, why now you know God as your Father in heaven and now address Him. And that is because He sent His Son to purchase you and buy you and incorporate you back into His family by His grace. That's the privilege. And whenever we bow our heads in prayer, and ever why do we recall, that's what we're to think of. And, and not coincidentally, this often explains why our prayer life is so weak and so lacking. If we would examine in our heart, how often do we really talk to God in prayer. Is really our life a life of continual prayer? We all have to answer, no, it's really not. It's really not. And part of the problem, if not a major part of the problem, is we forget what God has done. I'm his child, and he's my father. I should thank him for that. Even if I don't have any needs and wants, even if I don't have any requests, even if I, I have no other reason, I should, as it were, poke my head up into heaven before his heavenly throne and say, thanks, Father. Thanks for making me your child. And then once we've poked our heads up into heaven before his heavenly throne, 
we're going to find we have a whole lot more to say too, but that's often the root problem. Our root problem is we think we're all here because we put ourselves here and we are who we are because of what we've done and what we decided and we don't really need God. We're strong enough and we have what we need. No. Christ commands, call on God your Father. And even if you would say amen after that, that would be good. Our Father. And let's keep in mind Let's keep in mind, too, that we live in a world that's calling God everything but our Father. Calls Him all sorts of names and nasty things. And they call on Him to curse this and damn that, bring their neighbor down to hell. Child of God is entirely different. And it always shows itself, especially in prayer. Now, again, the purpose of this Notice there's a purpose with this. It's not even just to come to our mind. But notice how it's put. That immediately, immediately, right at the beginning, in the beginning of our prayer. I emphasize that because just the other day I was, I was praying and I, and I think I was quite a ways into my prayer, at least a sentence or two. And it hadn't even dawned on me that I'd said, Our Father, I'd forgotten all about it. It's like amen. We're going to get to amen in a little bit. And I've had people ask me, what's amen mean? And it's like, well, look in your catechism. It's, it's right there. Um, the problem is we don't think about these things. We throw out our Father and amen without hardly giving a thought about it. Um, yeah. No, at the very beginning, immediately, immediately, this is done to excite, to excite, to stimulate, to move us, to produce within us something. Again, <laughs> notice the language. It's very shocking because the catechism does not mean that your act of calling upon God as our Father automatically excites in us that. That's not true, as I just said. I was conscious just this week that I had done that. And my saying the words, our Father, didn't excite anything in me. And it didn't dawn on me until much afterwards that that happened. But the idea is that if we truly pray by faith, Remember, last time we said we pray by faith, and only by faith. Well, what's faith? Faith is knowledge and confidence. Knowledge and confidence in God, that He's the God of Scripture. That He's my God. Then there will be that. Now, who's doing the exciting? The answer is God. God is pleased to use this. God is pleased to use our obedience. God is pleased to use that address so that through faith we may be excited. Again, I point that out because I'm pointing out that prayer is always a response to God. It doesn't arise naturally from us. It's an act of faith. It has to come from faith and by faith. If we lack faith or don't have faith, we won't either pray or we'll pray to the wrong God or pray for the wrong things. So it's really God who excites us through faith. But my point is made there when you look at what it excites in us. 
What is the purpose of this address? To excite that very reverence and confidence in God. And then why? Because they are the foundation of prayer. Notice, prayer has a foundation. It has a principle. It has things that it stands on. That without which, it's not prayer. Well, what are those foundations? Well, we learned them before. They were called requisites. And I said to you that requisites there means foundation or basis. It's actually what's called a sine qua non. That is, the thing without which. What makes a prayer a prayer? When is just speech, and even speech to a deity or speech that has requests, when is such speech really a true prayer? What differentiates a true prayer from a false prayer? And we, we learned there's three requisites there. We pray from the heart to the one true God. We come humbly, knowing our needs and miseries. And thirdly, we're persuaded of something. That He will, even though we're unworthy of it, for Christ's sake, hear our prayer. You may summarize those all up as simply faith. Faith is the requisite of prayer. Without faith, there is no prayer. And if you say, what does it mean to pray by faith? We learned last week, it's those three things. To pray by faith means I know who I'm praying to. I'm praying to the one true God. And we notice as a part of that, I pray only for those things he commanded me to ask of him. That's faith. Faith is obedient. Faith is not disobedient. Faith is obedient. God says, this is what you pray for. Faith says, yes, that's what I'll do. Faith is also humble. And faith is humble exactly because it understands something about ourselves in relationship to God. And then we learn, but faith is also persuaded of something. It's confidence. It's assurance. Faith is assurance, by the way. Please understand that. I've been hearing rumors of people making all kinds of other things assurance, but faith is assurance. Faith is confidence. That's what it is. Well, notice they come back up now. And it's called the foundation of prayer. And, and by that, make no mistake, what they mean is if they're not there, you don't have a prayer. There's nothing to be founded on. And that foundation means how, how is it that you can pray the way that prayer is intended to be, which is I'm praying with certainty. Well, there's the explanation. It almost sounds circular, which so many things with faith are. How do you know that's true? Well, it's in the Word of God. Yeah, but how do you know it's true? It's in the Word of God. That's how faith thinks. So when faith comes before God, faith says, I know God will hear my prayer and God will answer my prayer. And faith also says, and it's God who hears my prayer. God answers my prayer and responds to my prayer not because my prayer is so good or because I ask the right things. Even that, which is interesting, is faith. Faith never looks at its own works. Never does. Faith never argues this way. Well, let me see. 
I looked at the requisites of prayer, and then check, check, and they see check. God now has to answer me. No, because now you've just obligated God again, and, and faith doesn't think that way, doesn't act that way. Faith just understands that I'm praying to God, and it's God who answers his prayer. And then notice, for his sake. Did you notice how the previous Lord's Day put it this way? No, let's back it up. How is the confidence, or what is the confidence of faith and even the reverence of faith based on this notion that I said it's that we are privileged. And I said it's that God has become our Father in Christ. Now, if you want to know what that means, what does it mean that God has become our Father in Christ? Because it's talking about the same thing. Go back to what was said earlier when it talked about humility. Secondly, that we rightly and thoroughly know our need and misery so that we may humble ourselves in His divine presence. And then this, and are fully persuaded that He, notwithstanding we are unworthy of it, will for the sake of Christ our Lord hear our prayer. Notice that. What's the confidence in? What's the assurance in? What's it grounded in? Is it prayer itself? No. Is it the manner we requested? No. Is it the fact that I asked for what God commanded? No. Now all those things are required. All those things are necessary. Without them you don't have faith. But the confidence is that God is my God for Christ's sake. Again, when we lack confidence in prayer, and this is going to follow from everything that we're going to get into. Will God really hear me? Maybe we even go into it with a defeatist attitude that I'm pretty certain God's not going to hear me. I don't know why I'm doing this. It seems like a waste of time, which is not an old, no, a new notion that's been around in prayer for a long time. What's the problem? The problem is we're blaming God for our lack of faith. The problem is we've forgotten something. We've forgotten that we're his children by his grace and mercy. That's the confidence of prayer. And it is an amazing thing. I am sure you've experienced it before. At least it should be your experience because it is the experience of a child of God. We, we may not always be conscious of it so clearly with every prayer but you've had those prayers, haven't you, where you have nowhere else to turn. You've tried to bring requests for help to everybody and their brother. And you've tried this, and you've tried that. And nothing's worked. And you go to God. And you go to God with utter humility, understanding how utterly helpless you are but also with that same faith, the faith that is true humility, believing in your heart with absolute certainty, I am God's child and he will hear me just like I hear my children. And you lay out a request, a request for the kind of thing that you know God has commanded. Not what you want, not what you wish or would you like, how he has commanded and for what he has commanded.
Maybe it's a request for something that you know is according to God's will. Healing, let's say. Or to recover from what may be a sickness that could take you to the grave. And you make that request, try it sometime. Not for the selfish reasons that maybe you'd be inclined to do. For God's sake, or others' sake, or the church's sake. And God answers that prayer, and there's no mistake about God's answer. You heard it, you know it. It's an amazing thing. What does it do? It only increases your faith. It causes your faith to grow, your confidence to grow. It's another reason why we ought to bring everything to God in prayer. Everything, of course, that he's commanded. You'd be, about, you'd be amazed the number of people that enter into marriage and they never once asked God about it. They really had no interest in going to God about it because it was their decision. They weren't interested in God's choice, God's decision, God's role in the matter. They really didn't care. Yeah, well, that have its consequences, won't it? Never prayed about children and having children, raising of their children, their job. Well, that's not the way it is if we have faith and live by faith. Now lastly, we want to consider just one point, and I will be brief. I brought it up earlier. It now builds on the reverent side of things, and it brings to mind something we may never forget, which is prayer is worship. Even more importantly, we rightly may call it the chief part of worship. Now, my guess is that if I asked you a question, give me the chief expression of worship. Give me, just list to me one thing that is the most important element of worship or the main thing. Almost all of you would say, it's what we're doing right now. We're sitting in church and we're listening to a sermon. And you would even have a certain amount of support because we call it the chief means of grace. And certainly that's what it is. But what really is the chief part of worship? It's prayer. We learned prayer is the chief part of thankfulness. And the life of the child of God is a life of thankfulness. Therefore, it's the chief part of fellowship. You can't, they're all the same thing. And because fellowship is worship, it's also the chief part of worship. This is why Jesus quoted what he quoted. When he threw out all the people that were abusing and defiling the temple, he had one basis. This is a house of prayer. Oh, there were a lot of things going on in that house, a lot more than go on here, it seems. Think about all the sacrifices and the incense and all the priests running around doing this and that. and Look at all the busyness that's going on. Legitimately and rightly, all things that God had ordered. Jesus takes it all, the whole Old Testament mode of worship, and says it was really prayer. I was struck by that when I looked at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, as you all know, is about the law of God. Look at the form of it. It takes the form of prayer. Supplication, calling on God. Psalm after psalm is that way. We forget that even really with regard to say a sermon. It really is a part of communication with God. He's speaking to us 
It's why we begin and end with prayer. It's why we have long prayer. But even more so, ask yourself again, do you worship only here on Sunday? Or is your whole life a life of worship? And if your whole life is a life of worship, what form does that worship take? And the answer should be prayer. Now that's humbling. Because it really indicates is all the other things that I'm busy with, all the other things I'm doing are not really worship. Oh, we like to fool ourselves. We know God is with us and we're honoring God, but more and more, those are the things that consume our life more and more so that when we really look at our life with God, we can hardly find when we're with Him. That's not the way it should be. We should be communing with God in our heart at all times, but especially <clears throat> in prayer. And it's worship. God is glorified and honored when we acknowledge Him before we eat and drink, before we make decisions, before we go to a job interview, before we go to bed at night, and when we get up in the morning. It's what God deserves. This is what God requires. This is what we owe to our God for making us His children. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, O Lord, hear our prayers. and We thank Thee, O Lord, for the instruction of prayer, reminding us of how we ought to live our lives and what fellowship with Thee really is all about. Forgive, O Lord, our sloth in prayer, our sinful prayers, the sin in prayer, our forgetfulness, and sanctify us in the way of prayer. Increase our hearts and minds, so that more and more we have confidence and reverence in Thee, our God, who art worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.